Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Arwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 107. PL timestamp, day 10, 8, afternoon. Keltham reviews Cheliax's feedback on his proposed interim contract. He is conscious somewhere in the back of his mind that if he is inside a generalized fiction novel, then this is the exciting trade with aliens section where the narration zooms in to show his thoughts in tons of detail, and all the readers are carefully evaluating the logic of everything to see if they can spot where Keltham makes his dramatic fatal error and that the part where he's occasionally distracted by thoughts of Yaisa is presumably being played for comedy, in a way that implies this is definitely a story wherein Keltham is making amusing, reader-spottable errors. Thankfully, Keltham's probability density is mostly not in his life being run pointwise by tropes in that detailed of a way, or on their existing an audience, he can reason about that way. Carissa wasn't a hidden cleric and all that. Cheliax does seem to be on board with Keltham's basic outline of the theory behind an interim intended to be replaced contract, though. Keltham expected more pushback on this. For something like metallurgy, which was Keltham's next intended thing to try, or road building, the plan is to have what would otherwise be an insanely onerous patent scheme, in which any Chelish metal makers or road builders adopting new techniques need to hand over to the project 80% of their increased profits above a 20% increase, relative to a baseline. They establish under untampered truth spell. Alternatively, the project can directly demand a per-volume patent fee. The rough idea is that you'd expect these entities to, themselves, end up capturing half the gains from trade. So if Keltham gets nearly all their gains, he's getting around half the gains to Cheliax. This fails if those entities compete against each other too much, and can capture only a small fraction of those gains, which is why Keltham can also set a coordinated per-volume fee if he notices that happening. Chelish governance is strongly recommended, but not mandated to reimburse them for substantial amounts of the money the manufacturers pay the project, so the manufacturers can scale operations the way they usually would given increased profits, and perhaps to subsidize purchase of the goods to make up for its price being set higher. If countries outside Cheliac start using the same technology, which Keltham is not actually expecting to happen that quickly, then competition from those countries will decrease pricing power inside Cheliac's, and the manufacturers will show less of a profit increase, and the project will get less of that increased profit. Or, to put it another way, if roadmakers outside Cheliac's adopt the same technology successfully, the government is allowed to hire those outside roadmakers to make roads inside Cheliac's, but they must be doing a sales volume outside Cheliac's, at least equivalent to their sales volume, within it, to fence off some overly clever functionary getting ideas about setting up a new roadmaker just outside the Chelish border. The project may, at its discretion, arrange things so that everybody with knowledge of key engineering details is a project employee and bound to the project by non-disclosure arrangements. It's intended that this overly arduous and detailed arrangement will eventually be replaced by a measurement of excess general growth in Cheliac's economy relative to economies of other countries, of which Keltham captures around half, after which all this can be tossed aside and replaced by general taxation and reimbursement mechanisms. For stuff like improved sanitation technology or anti-pandemic measures, 
Keltham is getting a certain impression that you can't just ask the insurers to pay for those. So this is going to be an issue of Cheliac's offering the project a price for outcomes, basically, and Keltham deciding how that gets prioritized relative to other tech based on that price. The price should take into account that other countries may adopt the same measures, because Keltham is not actually going to slow down adoption there at all. That's something where you just broadcast the knowledge Dathelon that taught him would have wished it so. Cheliac should offer the project a price that reflects how much they'd want to see that happen, and can maybe negotiate with other lawful countries about upping that price. This part can also fold into the general economic increase business, after which Cheliacs and other lawful countries can again be invited to bid on the project inventing further sanitation tech. Cheliac's request that during this initial period pending a replacement contract, while things are all happening inside Cheliac's anyways, two-thirds of the project's profits go into a Cheliac's internal investment fund, which Keltham promises to actually use for investments that he expects to boost the Chelish economy, including via spending on sub-projects of the project, or project employees, and infrastructure. If Keltham at some point wants to relinquish this responsibility, he can hand it back to governance, Profits of the fund go back into the fund itself. They're willing to trust Keltham's promise that the project won't pay out in salary more than is fair. There's an attached note in different handwriting saying that parts of governance aligned to old nobility will be more on board if this fund structure exists, for reasons that are probably not going to be legible to Keltham for a while. To give a not particularly accurate summary, they're incentivized to talk as if Keltham will take anything he's given and run to a neighboring country unfriendly to Cheliacs, even though this is not true, and adding this fund structure placates them and shows their concerns are being listened to and they're being respected about this. Keltham should not worry much about this and should leave these factions in governance to their own delusions, so long as it doesn't actually affect the way anything goes, which they're hoping this structure accomplishes. Right then. They're correct that this doesn't sound to him like a consistent agent equilibrium. Possibly some predictor in governance is bidding up the price on Keltham, deciding to take his early profits and go invest in some other country instead. Keltham will ponder whether this reflects some actual state of affairs they aren't telling him about. For the interim contract, he'll send back to have the amount be half, rather than two-thirds. But otherwise, okay, they're yielding to him enough on other stuff. Cheliax is pretty sure it can find a million gold pieces in actual gold to redeem money owable to the project, without that doing anything strange to their economy. If it's more than that, they want to be able to repay him in other valuables that Keltham approves, with a fallback to a guarantee to pay in standard valuables that would be available to somebody requesting to redeem currency at the Chelish Central Bank. At the same value in those valuables per face value gold piece instrument as would have existed at the time of signing this contract if Keltham is worried about currency devaluation. Keltham adds a note that the key date will actually be a day before Keltham's arrival, so they can't just drop all those valuations by a factor of 100 for one minute while signing the contract, but otherwise sure. Also, just to be sure, can somebody give him three examples of standard redeemables and prices and available volumes as they were on that day? Somebody in Chelish governance has ever heard of joint stock corporations. There's just no general market in their shares, which makes them less popular than a Dath Ilani might otherwise expect. Insurance basically seems not to exist at scale, which Keltham would have expected to imply a huge obstacle towards having there be limited liability for owners and officers of those joint stock corporations. 
But given that Keltham regards this issue as a blocker for obvious reasons of sanity, apparently Cheliax is willing to just say that Keltham doesn't have pass-through personal liability for the project if somebody sues the project for more than it's worth. Apparently this is usual for Galarian, in other countries, that have corporations recognized by local governments as entities. And the excess liability doesn't have to overflow to an insurer, it can just cease to exist with nobody responsible. This seems like a huge implicit subsidy for corporations that are doing anything risky and like it would create all kinds of awful incentives. Keltham supposes that he can just accept this implicit gift and then not do anything awful with it. They're basically on board with the project's corporate structure otherwise, though there's a note from a Seventh Circle priest of Asmodeus specializing in contracts who reviewed the whole thing that he doesn't understand why three-quarters of this stuff has the exact form that it does. The church bids 2,000 gold on Keltham, explaining it, in case it's theologically important to Asmodeus's domain of contracts. Keltham tilts his head slightly on reading this price. He can't tell if they're weirdly undervaluing his other opportunities, or just deliberately saying that this issue is not actually important, but should get done eventually. He'll ask Mylal about that, maybe. Cheliax is actually pretty unhappy about Keltham's request to have disputes arbitrated by a priest of the lawful neutral banking god Abadar. Abadar can be kind of weird about some things. Osirian has a terrible record on women's rights, including, for example, their ability to own their own property not in a man's name. Abadar may be into banking, but he's obviously not into fairness. A priest of the lawful neutral goddess Erakara who lives in the center of a giant interdimensional trading city and market, would be much better for this. Subject to that part, they're fine about mutual approval of the priest, or failing that, the arbitrating priest being selected by the Galarian head of Ericura's church. Keltham writes back that he can't just take Cheliax's choice of lawful neutral god here for obvious reasons, but he's fine with it being Irori instead. Finally, Governance notes for the record that they would usually hammer things out a lot more painstakingly than this, but they also want to actually get started on that tech transfer stuff. Their unusual pliability is to be understood as a request for haste. Keltham again tilts his head and writes back that civilization is also not in the habit of trying to design planet-affecting contracts this quickly. Cheliax obviously knows more than him about how local law, or a lawful neutral god's priest, is liable to interpret contracts like this. Cheliax presumably has professional lawyers they can actually trust to help. Keltham's rapid composition of these interim contracts is to be understood as a favor for Cheliax. He's a fourth circle cleric, and not especially likely to get sick with plague in the next month if there's a one-month delay in project work. Sort of weirdly reminiscent of his interaction with Abigail about a favor owed to her for her pride. It sounds like maybe that's a chellish thing. You look out for your interests and point out your concessions, and leave the other side to point out theirs. Matches, some things Carissa said about sexual interactions, or for that matter, Yesa at lunchtime, how a chellish woman wouldn't expect reciprocation owed if it wasn't spelled out. As a social practice, it doesn't necessarily strike Keltham as that great of an idea, but it's the sort of thing where he could see it being easier on the feelings of Keltham's in the Keltham-verse than on the feelings of Dathilani. You can still trade with aliens like that. Asmodia will later get a copy of this stuff. Asmodia, who would again never dare do this if not on a low-punishment regime, 
will go through it and add many angry notes about terms that wouldn't have actually been suggested in Alter Cheliacs, and how she now has to make the rest of her universe look like that was a totally sensible thing for Alter Cheliacs to say. And next time she needs to review anything like this brilliant idea for a Cheliacs internal-only investment fund before anybody says that to Keltham. This isn't about avoiding dead giveaways. This is about Keltham doing reasoning of a form that only he and Asmodia understand. And Keltham will have updated off somebody's brilliant idea for cutting Cheliax's future losses here. Somebody should get flayed about this. It's actually somewhat refreshing. Abrogale usually only hears this kind of honesty from people she has managed to bring to very extreme emotional states, and has some pleasant associations about that. And time to go meet with Carissa about potential new employees. What have they got for him? The amount of splendor needed to lie to Keltham on most topics? Like, twelve. The amount of splendor needed to get Keltham to agree to a contract that's slightly unfair? Apparently, thirty or something. That's not quite true. There are bits he didn't think to question. But he's good at this, and instinctively so, and Hell is supposed to be incredibly clever when it comes to these things, and it's sort of concerning how the servants of the god whose domain is tricky, contracts are mostly playing even with a random Dathilani teenager, and that's despite them having played fast and loose with the Alter Cheliax rules. No, not concerning. It's great news. It is part of why her value in Dis is so high. Hell will get better at this and serve Asmodeus better. Project management has a dozen candidate files for Keltham, all of them reasonably promising, pre-screened for meeting security clearances. Five of them are boys. Carissa ended up deciding on enough boys that it was only bleeding a bit of evidence towards their having disproportionately done a search for girls, but few enough that if Keltham rejects them all, he'll still have lots of options and it won't take up much of his time. The ones that looked superficially the most promising to project management are on top, which is intended to save him time, but he can go in some other order if he'd rather. Keltham quizzically observes his actual level of internal surprise, and maybe even slight dismay at male candidates being included, neither of which he would have expected himself to feel. Probably worth a pretty serious chunk of probability mass out of conspiracy. Should have thought to predict that in advance but the amount of surprise he's feeling would seem to indicate that he wasn't putting a lot of probability mass on male candidates being included. Well, makes sense, though. Ordinary was thinking something like, there's an alien, we don't know his gender trope or how well he can do research with a bunch of boys his age. Also, we want him to feel very welcome in Cheliacs. Also, we want all his genes. Also, we may not have a lot of time here. Let's send him 12 girls from a wizard academy. And then now they're like, well, he's doing pretty okay, and we ran out of great female candidates, so send him some males. Conspiracy, you would think more on priors, would have some dark plan that looked something like Lul Keltham with a harem, and then not want to modify that plan based on how things went on Project Lawful so far. Factor of two? Factor of three? Call it 2.5, maybe. And don't neglect to note that remaining probability mass in conspiracy is narrowing more towards the conspiracy is improvising and modifying their plans as they go. Moving on from that, two of the male candidates and three of the female candidates look too good to pass up. One of the female candidates looks like a why would they include this case. 
The remaining three men and three women seemed to be in basically the same bin so far as Keltham's ability to tell who would work out. Given that Keltham has a demonstrated ability to successfully interact with chelish girls and less such demonstrated ability to interact with any boys his age, he feels a certain impulse to take the three female candidates in this round and let more male candidates wait pending, seeing what happens with the first two. Is that blatant rationalization? Possibly. He'd kind of expect to end up saturated on romantic options either way. It's just that Keltham doesn't feel like he actually has much of a basis on which to make more decisions here, aside from noticing his own nervousness about what young adult masculine gender tropes are like around here. Keltham has arrived at his opinions. What does Carissa think about these dozen? Do you in fact want boys? Asks Carissa, who predicted internally a 70% chance he takes them. Many wizard schools don't do mixed-sex classes because girls behave differently around boys and vice versa. There's two men who look incredibly promising, and civilization sure wouldn't exclude them on that basis. Having them sent as candidates at all implies that at least somebody in governance doesn't consider that a blocker problem. How much of a problem is it liable to be in Cheliacs? Not a huge one. Not all wizard schools do that, and I don't think anyone has noticed one way or the other being resoundingly better. But, you know, governance just wants medals as fast as possible. You can want other stuff if you think it'll make your life harder. In civilization, I'd have more faith in my ability to determine after the first week of candidacy whether anything grimdark was happening or not. Seems like a dumb thing not to test at some point. Though the project isn't going to stay a one-male operation forever. Suppose we ignore that part. What's your opinions on the Twelve? I've got mine. She has ranked them by suitability in an order that's nearly the same as his. If the project weren't so top secret, I'd be inclined to take them all knowing we might fire half in a week, but firing people is really inconvenient with all this top secretness. Think I wouldn't want this one in the next round, taps the weakest female candidate, and given the inconvenience of turning people down, I feel inclined not to try more candidates than I want to hire if they all work out so that there isn't anyone I have to tell that they were good, but not good enough. Am I being too evil there, in your opinion? This is kind of important, and maybe I should do the good thing and tell them to suck it up. Personally, I would be as evil as I wanted. You don't owe it to Galerion to make your job stressful for the sake of inventing sanitation faster, even if that worked in the long run. He kind of does owe it? He's not that absolutely devoid of good, and everything he has to trade is given him by grace of Doth Elan. Okay, maybe the amount of internal stress that thought generated was a warning sign. There's also penalties if he feels pressured into hiring too many people. That is also a wisdom out of civilization. What's the next best alternative to going with only eight candidates such that he could in principle hire all of them if all of them performed well enough? asking for 11 candidates, but warning them that there's only eight seats, they might end up stuck in secret project limbo for years, if not selected, warning the male candidates that they may be slightly more at risk than female candidates. Let's go with eight, the two most promising men, and all women, except the unpromising one. Warn everyone except the top two men and top three women that they're starting from a slightly less favored position for a permanent job. If anybody doesn't want to show up given that, go to the alternate male candidates. If, as expected, the gender tropes mix okay, then we'll consider men and women on an even basis in future hiring rounds. 
I'd be tempted to only go with the five most promising candidates, except that I don't know if we can get more, and I also wouldn't get to check my sense of who's more or less promising. In civilization, where expanding quickly wasn't that urgent, and people wouldn't need time-consuming law lectures just to get up to speed on basic thinking, and you could just go on looking for more candidates, and I actually trusted at all my sense of who seems promising the common wisdom would strongly say to only try the five really promising candidates at this stage of expansion, and beg Cheliacs to please provide more like those. I don't know whether to expect Cheliacs could find more like these if you told them to or not. The age range and intelligence scores loosely suggest to me they looked at every known intelligent person who is hireable for something like this, and there's not a much deeper pool to keep searching. That's a frankly terrifying thought about a country of 20 million people. He might have to expand his hiring search outside Cheliac sooner than any person would have considered sane from a security standpoint. All right, you know, if this is basically the best hiring pool we're ever going to get, let's go with trying all eleven, except the bottom woman. And if all eleven seem to be working out great, I'll suck up the rapid expansion and tell Milol I'm sorry about having failed to correctly forecast my hiring needs. Actually, maybe ask the woman on the bottom of the ordering if she wants to try too, despite my prior prediction being that she'll fail quickly, and despite what happens to her if she fails. Maybe I'm just wrong about who's promising, and somebody in governance is right. Seems worth letting her take the chance if she's not costing us anything. If someone thought she was worth passing along, they might have had reason that wasn't in the file. Of course, the reason might have been, as a personal favor— that is how things sometimes work around here. Are you shitting kidding me? Now I'm wondering if I should truth spell everyone on this list about whether that happened. Which seems like a huge act of tyranny. Wow, short word for that. But flaming shit Carissa, that's not a good thing to have to worry about. I'm sorry. I hope that's not what happened. But I live on this planet, so I'm telling you sometimes that's what happens. People get in trouble for it if they get caught, but they don't always get caught. I wasn't blaming you. I'll check with Mayol about whether anything seems suspicious, try to get a sense of how bad it would be to truth-spell everyone coming in, or if I could ask security to add a question to their usual screens about whether they fiddled the application process, or if their competence is being exaggerated. If Mayol doesn't flag anything, I'll go ahead with the plan to invite all twelve, but with varying degrees of warning about how doomed they might be. Sound like a plan? Sounds good to me. I'm excited to work with these people. They look really smart. And a noble. We move in such esteemed company these days. Yeah, somebody's going to have to explain what a noble is at some point, or why that would be a good thing when the Taldane word sure doesn't sound like it, but not right now. If you don't think it's a red flag, my going back to Mayal with our answer doesn't have to wait on it. I don't think it's a red flag. Go take Mylol his list. Mayol wishes he could tell Keltum that they'll get a crop of better candidates once the project produces results. But Mayol is not sure this is true. He will not be incredibly happy if they suddenly have to hire 12 people, especially if they're all Tier 1S at current salaries, but sees the perspective from which this would also be unexpectedly good news, assuming they work out anyways. Everything becomes easier in terms of funding calls, when and if the project is earning enough revenue to pay its own costs, including the fortress and not just the researcher's salaries. Mayol can't unfortunately promise that hiring becomes easier. 
That's probably more a matter of the security situation surrounding the project, and also trying to have the candidates be so young and yet already outperforming. Yeah, that's all about what Keltham expected. PL timestamp, day 10-8, late afternoon. Keltham takes the time to hang silent image, to let his brain decompress from project managing. He's actually managed not to think about Yaisa for an hour. Well, now he's sure thinking about it, but distractions from hanging silent image seem far less dangerous. After that, he's got the time for another hour of law before dinner, and after a lesser restoration, the energy too. So next up is utility. As a starting koan, would anybody care to offer him an example of set of preferences that seems clearly unlawful? How could you want things in a way that was bad math? Meritzel proposes that you could want something and also want not that. That does sound pretty unlawful, but what behavior would that look like externally? That's a little harder. When you don't have a horse, you will pay for a horse. When you do have a horse, you will pay to stop having a horse. And then you'd pay for another horse. Hmm, yes, that doesn't sound good. Suppose that your preferences don't change over time. You prefer things to other things in a way that doesn't change based on whether you have them or not. Can your preferences still be unlawful? You could prefer to stop having your preferences. And what outward behavior would that look like? Going around trying to provoke powerful, unscrupulous wizards into using the incredibly illegal mind control you hope they have so that they'll make you want something different. Sounds to Keltham like there's sort of two different slices through you, there. A slice that wants to, let's say, spend all your money on nice things today, which is unfortunately able to gain control of your body and send it shopping and spend money. And then a different slice through you is later able to gain control of your mouth and ask powerful wizards if they've got mind control for not doing that. Keltham doesn't know why the unscrupulous modifier is being applied here. It might be illegal and even for good reasons, but if that technology was available in civilization, everyone would be using it. Under keeper supervision, obviously, but still, that's a fair example, but also kind of complicated. How about if they keep things much simpler and more concrete, like Keltham casts prestidigitation three times to create three fragile temporary objects, a red sphere, a blue cube, a green tetrahedron. Can anyone say what it would be like to have unlawful preferences about these three specific and concrete objects right here? Assuming your preferences don't change over time or based on what you're holding, and assuming that the same slice through yourself was in control of your actions and your mouth. Reminder, Tier 2S speak first. Prediction. Yes, yes, Keltham knew that was coming. But anyone else? Are you counting, I like the red one more than the blue one, and the blue one more than the red one? Or is that just the same as the wanting to have and not have a horse, says Tanya? We're counting that like wanting and not wanting a horse. What we're calling a preference is shown by the act of trading one of these things for the other. So if you trade it one way, and then trade it back the other way, we'll say your preference reversed over time. What about, I like the red one more than the blue one, and the blue one more than the green one, and the green one more than the red one? Is that just the same with more steps? That's the example I was looking for. That's an example of circular preference. If I'd pay a copper to trade red for blue every time, and not pay to trade it back, and not say with my mouth that I wanted anything different. That's a locally coherent preference, and we can't say there's anything strange about it by itself. But if I'd likewise pay a copper to trade blue for green, and to trade green for red, 
you could just stand around trading me the same objects and extracting all my money from me. Or even if I wasn't willing to pay a whole copper, you could stand around trading me the same objects and burning up all my time, which is as much a resource to me as money. No one of my preferences is probably contradicting a law we'll find later by itself. It's only when brought together that they can't all stand simultaneously. Tanya immediately looks back down at her notes, but she's smiling. So we've got the first suggestion of a law fragment, which says that we shouldn't have any circular preferences. I claim that, equivalently to this condition, it must be possible to put everything we want into a global ordering. Say by tagging them with numbers minus 2, minus 1, 0, 1, 2, and so on, and then to determine which things we want more than one another, we just compare their numbers in the ordering, and we want more whichever has the higher number. If you have wants inconsistent with being able to do that, I can take all your money from you, or at least all your time. Do you buy that? If you don't buy it, I would, of course, like to know why you're refusing the sale. The students glare suspiciously at him. It sounds like an obvious trap. That doesn't mean they can think what the trap is, though. Are you forbidding any two wants to have the same position in the ordering? Mm. No. We will say it is possible to be indifferent between two things you want. I could want a cube and a sphere equally, both labeled three, and decline to spend my time to trade either one for the other, and then also prefer a triangular pyramid to both, labeling it four. What kind of language lacks a word for the regular tetrahedron? Well, okay, to be fair, Keltham can see how that would fail to come up a lot in everyday life. I'm still relatively sure this is a trap, but can't actually see where the trap is. Your next move is to say that you have to sometimes say, I claim, in a case that's totally true, or we'll just catch on to you. Even after you've said this, however, I'll still consider it a trap with 90% probability. Asmodia has an overconfidence problem, but Keltham will again wait until she's actually wrong to make that point. We're either going to need to add some shorter words to this language, or start speaking Bayesline if you're going to go around saying sentences like that. It was relatively subtle in this case, and did depend on my exact wording. Suppose that I say I'm indifferent between red and blue, and indifferent between blue and green, but I prefer green to red. That can't be done with numbers, but you can't extract all my money out of me either. What you can do is offer to trade me red to blue for free, after having previously made me a standing offer to trade blue to green for free. And I'll turn you down because I'm indifferent about both of those trades. Then you offer to trade me red to green for a copper, and I accept. I didn't pay out all my money by a repeatable path, but I paid more than I needed to. You could also imagine that this reflects a situation where I like blue a bit more than red, but not enough to pay the time-energy-attention cost of taking your offer to trade the two for free, and I like green a bit more than blue, but the total gap from red to green isn't enough to pay time costs on two swaps, only time cost on one swap. If we say that when I'm indifferent I'll always let you walk over and switch the two items without my bothering about it, then the claim becomes fully true, and you can pump infinite money or time out of me if my preferences don't form a... can't be ordered the way I talked about. Is this one of those things mortals mostly do right but unconsciously? Gregoria says. Or do mortals mostly do it wrong? Yes. It's complicated. You're unlikely to screw up whether you'd prefer eating an apple to being stabbed with a knife. Er, bad example. Good example in Doth Ilan, sadly enough. Bad example here. Happy, happy, joy, joy. 
I guess the classic cake-or-death example in decision theory is also less clear, what with the local afterlives. We can, however, at least say that Maritzel is unlikely to get confused about whether she prefers eating an apple or being stabbed. As soon as things get complicated, obscured, hidden behind layers of abstraction, presented in different ways at different times, mortals start doing less well than that. And if people who run experiments on people to find out how they work. Start trying to configure things in ways that will trip you up. It doesn't take much effort. I'm not sure even a keeper could argue anyone into preferring infinite torture over eternal happiness. But I'm not actually sure they can't, either. There's silence for longer than Carissa thinks there would be in Alter Cheliacs. I mean, depends who they're trying to talk into it, probably. And whether it's the fun kind of torture. Zon Kuthon's followers don't give that reason for being Kuthites, do they? Says Gregoria only a beat after that, very calmly. Like, they don't say, oh no, Zon Kuthon had a legitimately convincing argument. I've never met a Kuthite, but if he had arguments at all, that'd make him the most powerful god, wouldn't it? Since the rest of them mostly can't talk to us directly. It's hard in Galarian to make certain points when you're an alien. I mean, I'm sure there'd be equally straightforward points I could make locally. I just don't know what they are. What I ought to do at this point is demonstrate to you one of the standard ways to confuse an unprepared subject. But it would take a very reliable example, with only eight subjects now to test it on, which I'd have to divide into three groups. And more importantly, I don't know the things about Galerion I'd need to know. To construct that example... Maybe Carissa can tell me how to construct it, actually, though it'd invalidate the demonstration for her. Hold on. Message to Carissa. I'm looking for something that has both a quantity and a quality, and then something else which just has a comparable quality but no comparable quantity, and is otherwise as similar as possible. It's got to be something which, apart from quality considerations, would reliably make somebody think that it was H probably about equal value. What I'm going to do is offer three different groups' choices between pairs of the low-quality, high-quantity item, the medium-quality, non-quantitative item, and the high-quality, low-quantity item, and people tend to think that quantity matters more than quality, but only when they can compare quantities directly, and otherwise the quality becomes salient, so the three groups' preferences will go in a circle. She needs considerably more detail than that to come up with a suggestion, but with some back and forth? they can probably work one out? Keltham divides the remaining seven students into groups of three, three, and one, and then hands out three slips of paper containing pairwise comparisons to these three groups, respectively. One. Would you rather have an Osirian book describing thirty rare magic items, or an Absalom book on principles of spell design? Two. Would you rather have a Nexian book describing ten rare magic items, or an Absalom book on principles of spell design? 3. Would you rather have a Nexian book describing 10 rare magic items, or an Osirian book describing 30 rare magic items? Oh, and considering you got more warning than usual, this time please just put down the actual preference that comes to you and don't overthink it. Sure, you might be able to evade the trap if you thought hard and maybe didn't put down what you would have naturally wanted if you weren't trying to evade some unknown trap but the point in this case is just to show the basic phenomenon. Maybe. 
When civilization does this, they've usually tried out a dozen variants first to find one that works. Anyways, go try it. This sort of thing is stressful because it might be different in Alter Cheliacs, where books are probably not mostly illegal. Possibly not, though. Magic books would be rare anyway, and none of those countries have had their backstories changed much. Security should not help the girls cheat. Results. Group 1. Two of three prefer the Osirian Book of 30 Items over the Absalom Spell Design Book. Group 2. Three of three prefer the Nexian Book of 10 Items over the Absalom Spell Design Book. Group 3. One of one preferred the Osirian Book of 30 Items over the Nexian Book of 10 Items. Now is that an update for or against conspiracy? She thinks... against. Weakly, because conspiracy might have engineered the right outcome since she was tempted to do that. It has not even slightly occurred to Keltum to try to update off this, because why? Why would anyone do that? Why would even the conspiracy mess with his experimental results here? It's not that he's explicitly reasoning that way. The thought just hasn't occurred to him. Not quite the illustrative results I was hoping for, but that's what happens when you run really tiny experimental groups and don't do any pilot samples to pretest your theories about how people will actually react. The underlying theory, how it was supposed to work here, is that if you see the Osirian Book of 30 items side by side with the Nexian Book of 10 items, that makes the quantity of items salient. It makes the quantity mean something. If you don't pick a very large quality difference, in a case like that, people usually go for the higher quantity. If, on the other hand, I compare a Nexian Book about 10 magic items to an Absalom Book of Spell Design, what does the number 10 really mean there? It's not more or less than any obvious numbers about the spell design book. So what you see instead is Nexian and Absalom, where Nex has a better magical reputation than Absalom, apparently. Obviously, I'm just going off Carissa here. Similarly, if I compare the Osirian book of 30 items to the Absalom spell design book, the number 30 doesn't have some other number to compare to. So everybody goes for Absalom because they have a better magical reputation than Osirion. Was what was supposed to happen, but didn't. Either because we didn't run any pilot studies to see what usually worked on people, or because our groups were so tiny that randomness dominated. But you at least got to see that the Osirian book looked a little less attractive next to the Absalom spell design book than the Nexian book looked next to the Absalom spell design book, even though if you put the Osirian and Nexian books side by side, that one subject went for the Osirian one with more items. If I could run more probes like this, I could probably find a slightly different version that reliably gave the result I was hoping for if you run it on three groups of 20 students, say, who hadn't been warned of what the test was about. And this doesn't work on devils or keepers? asked Gregoria. This particular form shouldn't work on me, if the decision is important enough to be worth thinking about for more than a few seconds. Possibly on an old enough devil it wouldn't work, even if the issue was trivial, say. And probably that's true about higher keepers, though. I don't know at what rank the immunity would start. At higher levels of messing with people like this, there's... Well, mostly the techniques are secret, I expect. But it's known that one of them uses... What would you have here that's an equivalent phenomenon? You'd have visual afterimages, at least, I expect. If you look at a bright light, especially if it was dark before then, and then look away, you can see a smear of light where the, 
nerves that detect light, all fired and used up some of their energy, and got tired, and now you can see something like darker glowing spots in your vision where the brightness was. So, if you're a sufficiently high-ranked keeper, you know about how to manipulate people's thoughts based on getting them to activate particular brain areas harder or more intensely. And then you say something else that roots through the same brain area, and it does a weird thing based on some of the nerves being tired or other nerves around them adjusting to high activity. We're allowed to know this is the general outline of how the technique can work, because it's incredibly hard to engineer. You can't reinvent it just by knowing how it works and reading non-secret neuroscience. There are cautionary videos that everybody in civilization gets to see, wherein a keeper talks to an unsuspecting subject. You can't hear or see what the keeper is saying, but you can hear the person they're talking to, and the person they're talking to starts to say occasionally more and more ridiculous things, and finally agrees to sell the keeper all the clothes they're wearing for the equivalent of a copper piece. We get to see those videos so that we have some idea of what it would look like if a conspiracy successfully hid itself from governance while developing advanced talk control techniques outside of the keeper system, and then tried to take over the world. Which, I mean, to be clear, there are presumably other precautions in place to prevent, but one of those precautions is like warning people about what that could look like. This is a sort of thing we rehearse during the annual alien invasion, rehearsal festival. It's not literally just aliens. The theme varies by the year. Sounds fake, thinks Gregoria, but doesn't say it. Sounds like they have magic and we're keeping it from you and you still don't see it. Annual Alien Invasion Rehearsal Festival, says Meritzel. Disaster preparedness holiday. In this case, it'd be something like, one in 10,000 people, probably relatively smarter ones than myself, get told that they're part of the evil conspiracy to take over the world. Where it's realistically improbable that the conspiracy got up to 100,000 people and nobody noticed but you want to test yourself against problems more difficult than the ones you really expect to face. Then those people have mind control powers, meaning that if they end up talking to you for five minutes, they get to hand you a card saying, you've now been mind controlled, and you should go off and get other people to talk to them, or try to sabotage the company you work for, or cut a communications line, or kill potential leaders for the resistance in their sleep. And then all the key infrastructure people have to make sure their organization goes on working when a bunch of people have been tagged dead and maybe somebody got turned into a saboteur. Other people need to check houses for people who got killed and make sure they get into the deep cold. Obviously not for real, just rehearsing that. That sort of thing. Civilization doesn't have any serious enemies that we know about. That doesn't mean civilization wants to let itself get weak. If Nadal opens a gate into our dimension and tries to take over the world using alter self and suggestion spells, we've gamed that out in advance. I think Nadal would take over the leadership, not a random one in 10,000 people, says Meritzel. And they run drills on that more often than annually and have more eyes on each other and probably something like 8,000 different precautions, none of which I am allowed to know about. Becoming the sort of person who gets to figure out how the leadership gets defended against talk control conspiracies is one of the classic dream jobs for little kids growing up in Dathilan. It's like going to the moon colony. You would get to spend so much time imagining brilliant plots somebody else might try against you and trying to figure out what simple, deep, robust methods you could use to prevent that or failing that devastatingly brilliant counter precautions. That does sound incredibly fun. Meritzel concedes. 
I don't know that they'd win against Nadal with their average intelligence, but they would probably beat actual Nadal. She stops thinking the thought before it can get to, or actual Cheliacs. They would totally beat actual Cheliacs. Carissa would advise the queen to just immediately surrender. Meritzel, I could beat actual Nadal. Given time to scale up in Cheliacs, that's why the God War started. With the ability to learn magic and a bunch of allied Galarian nations, I think it'd really be very hard to win a war if the other side had magic and you didn't. But I don't know what your governance secretly has in store, and I'd guess it's kind of a lot. Civilization would cheat. They'd figure out exactly what mental state somebody had to be in to absorb extra magic like Carissa did during her date with Abigail. And then some sixth-rank keepers would go into that exact mental state on purpose, because they could just do that. And very, very quickly, civilization would have its own powerful wizards. Or ninth-rank keepers would talk-control Nadal's ninth-circle wizards, who would be under the mistaken impression that their magical shielding prevented them from being mind-controlled by people who knew vastly, vastly more about how their own minds worked than they did. Seriously, Nadal is not at all the issue here. The question is whether civilization without local allies can take Zon Kuthon. Gregoria is pretty sure she would in fact ask this question here, but is she, like, allowed to? Yes, if she's sure she would in Alter Cheliacs. Her majestrix tortured Carissa, right? Which worked because of the kind of person Carissa is, and might not work on a non-masochistic person at all. But if it does in fact work on anybody... Doth Elon would do that to win a war? It's very unlikely they'd have to. They'd just analyze the real phenomenon underlying all that and figure out how to reproduce the same effect more simply, quickly, powerfully. But also, yes, there'd be probably at least a hundred thousand people in civilization who'd volunteer for that, to save civilization, or for that matter, just to save Nadal. Even in a lawful good civilization, you're going to throw some people as evil and chaotic as me. Well. If you go looking in the other direction, you're also going to find some people completely off the deep end of lawful goodness. Also keep in mind that depending on what spell silver is exactly, it's not improbable that somebody can make a call and get a million pounds of it delivered in three hours. I'm not sure you've grasped the sheer distinction of scale between one young, slightly above-average kid from civilization getting tossed into Galarion with no prior preparation. And what would happen if actual civilization got a two-way portal to Galarion? There might be a war with Zonkuthon. There would not be a war with Nidal. There would be a rescue operation on Nidal. Too bad we don't have the portal, then, Meritzel says. Carissa is briefly incredibly curious how far off the deep end of lawful goodness one can go and what those people are like. She doesn't really want to know, except she totally does. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.